Good afternoon and welcome to our service of Reflections at the Cross. We'll be following through the story in John chapters 18 and 19. There will be pieces of music, readings from the text and then reflections on what we've heard. Please participate as you feel led. Some of the songs will be solos, some will have the words on the screen. As we begin, let's begin with the Collect for Good Friday. Let's pray. Almighty Father, look with mercy on this your family, for which our Lord Jesus Christ was content to be betrayed and given up into the hands of sinners and to suffer death upon the cross, who is alive and glorified with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Our journey begins. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the
comes from John chapter 18, beginning to read at verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words you had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. After the Last Supper, Jesus leads the disciples to a beloved place, an enclosed garden where he and the disciples have often gathered to pray. John hints at the distress associated with Gethsemane and in the other Gospels. John 12, 27, 28 talks about his heart being troubled as he contemplates the sacrifice to be made. John 13, 21 recounts his distress at the betrayal to come, that betrayal at the hands of one whose feet Jesus had just washed at the Last Supper. But in our first reading here, Jesus appears as the still centre around which the whole of the story turns. Going out and challenging those who have come to arrest him, Jesus asks who they're seeking. And when they state they're seeking Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus replies with words that consciously echo the divine name Yahweh, which can be translated, I am who I am. In Greek, it's just the two words meaning I am. As throughout John's gospel, the I am sayings make a similar point whether it's I am the bread of life, or I am the way and the truth and the life, or I am the good shepherd, there's always a conscious echoing of the divine name. And here in verse 5, the divine name is powerful, because at these words, I am, those who've come to arrest Jesus draw back and some fall to the ground, presumably in awe. Despite coming in overwhelming numbers to arrest Jesus, the commander mentioned in verse 12 is a kiliarch or a commander of a thousand men. Even if it's not the whole number, the impression is of overwhelming force. Despite coming in overwhelming force to arrest Jesus, just those two words, I am, expressing his divine nature and they are powerless to come near. But that's not God's purpose here. It just underscores that the reality that their purpose cannot succeed unless it also furthers that of God. 
as we'll see throughout our journey today, John stresses over and over God's sovereignty by pointing out how often details of the story confirm biblical prophecies. Jesus appears as the still centre around which the whole of the story turns. Not only does he go out to interrogate his would-be captors, his declaration of his sovereignty renders them powerless. So Jesus in verse 7 invites them to start again, reassuring them in verse 8 that there'll be no repeated outbreak of God's glory as long as those accompanying him are allowed to leave. But Peter springs into action in verse 10. Perhaps the disciples had all been also been overawed by God's glory, determined to prevent Jesus's arrest, even though Jesus is consenting to it. Peter strikes out against one of the servants of the high priest. Yet again, yet again, as he was at Caesarea Philippi in Mark 8.33, where he dared to tell the Messiah off, Peter is once again getting between Jesus and his destiny, and he is firmly rebuked. Jesus has revealed his glory and the powerlessness of those ranged against him to arrest him without their consent. Jesus has revealed his fo- released his followers from arrest and Jesus has rebuked Peter and allowed his re- arrest. Jesus is the still centre around which the whole story revolves. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. No give 
The reading is from John 18, verses 12 to 27. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You are not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood round a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing there with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple, where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him, still bound, to Caiaphas the high priest. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, You are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment a cock began to crow. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. John's Gospel is the Gospel from Jerusalem. The healing at the pool of Bethesda in John 5, the healing of the man born blind in John 9, the raising of Lazarus in John 11, and the reaction of the authorities to all three of these, all of these are recorded only in John's Gospel and all happen in Jerusalem or just outside. Similarly, the cleansing of the temple in John 2, the visit of Nicodemus after dark in John 3, John's teaching at both the Feast of Tabernacles in John 7 and and the Feast of Dedication in John 10, all are recorded only in John's Gospel and all happen in Jerusalem. Whereas the other Gospels tell us simply that there was a plot against Jesus, John's Gospel reports from within the Sanhedrin in John 7, 45-52 and John 11, 45-53. Why do I mention this? Simply because I think we need to understand that John is the story of Jesus told from Jerusalem, not Galilee. It has an enormous amount of material that happens in Jerusalem and Judea and compared with the other Gospels, comparatively little from Galilee. John's Gospel contains the testimony of disciples often highly placed from Jerusalem. 
If you think that's fanciful, just look at verses 15 to 17 of chapter 18. After Jesus has been marched, uh, arrested and marched off, only two disciples follow, Peter and an unnamed disciple. This unnamed disciple is well enough known to both the high priest and his household to be able to gain access to the compound of his house at a time of enormous tension. So this unnamed disciple can't be a passing acquaintance. He's got to be well known within those circles. More than this, so well known is he to the house that he can even come back and vouch for Peter as well, persuading those on the door to let Peter in as well. With people like this, with Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, with many priests according to Acts 6-7 and Pharisees according to Acts 15-5, joining the faith after Easter, we can see clearly that John's gospel is the gospel from Jerusalem. And that's why John has so much more detail of the events described here happening in the Sanhedrin and before Pilate. That gives substance and detail to a picture that makes it extraordinarily vivid and extraordinarily credible. It's really not clear what Peter hoped to achieve. Yes, there are soldiers and servants who don't know one another, so it's possible to avoid direct detection amongst lots of different households and groups. Everyone would tend to assume he's there with one of the others. But what's the point of being there at all? Did he simply hope to be a witness to what happened to Jesus? Or did he dream of rescuing him, maybe by organising an escape once he knew where Jesus was held? But whatever he hoped to achieve, notice that Peter is being actively disobedient. Jesus has said firmly in John 18, 11, that he was determined to drink the cup the Father had given him. Peter and the others were commanded not to interfere. And the price is really high for Peter. Far from helping Jesus, this useless self-appointed mission leads not to Jesus being helped, but to Jesus being denied three times. If Peter's motives are unclear, Annas's are crystal clear. Caiaphas had stated in John 11, 47-53, that it was better for one man to die for the nation than that the temple and the nation be lost. This statement was provoked by Lazarus being raised from the dead and the wonder that had gripped the people afterwards. John asserts in verses 51-53 to of chapter 11 that Caiaphas holding God's authority in the nation, was prophesying without realising that Jesus would die, and I quote, for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. John eleven fifty two. Annas's motives are crystal clear. Find or create an evidential basis that can justify execution. And it's Annas rather than Caiaphas, I think, so that Caiaphas has plausible deniability. By the time it reaches a full hearing of the Sanhedrin, all the violence and the extrajudicial process Caiaphas has no first-hand knowledge of and can therefore deny. Annas probes Jesus' teaching, prompting the response from Jesus that his teaching had been open and public and that other witnesses can be found to speak for him. And that fair response provokes only a massive slap. Annas probes about the disciples, trying to estimate, I think, how much of a threat they might pose without their leader. 
Remember the feeding of the 5,000 men and their families, the stated desire of some there to come and make Jesus king by force. According to John 6.15, it must have looked to the outsider like the mustering of an army. So Annas wants to know about the disciples for that reason, wants to know how much of a challenge it will be to snuff out the whole network. This is extrajudicial, violent process conducted in secret, away from more scrupulous eyes like those of Nicodemus who protested in John 7.50-52. No one has any interest here in the truth or in justice. Only evidence that can be found or created to be useful, but none is found. Jesus points out that he is being beaten for speaking the truth, but in this process with only one predetermined end, determined end, no one shows the slightest interest in the truth. Jesus is sent, still bound, to Caiaphas. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. taken from John chapter 18 beginning to read at verse 28 and reading through to chapter 19 the first part of verse 16. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness the Jews didn't enter the palace they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate then, then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? 
Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You're right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him! Give us Barabbas! Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realise I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, He brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. The chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pilate mistrusts their intentions from the start. 
Receiving a Sanhedrin delegation in the dawn demanding the execution of a prisoner was unusual, but the timing just before Passover suggests a desperation that must have made him wonder, must have given him pause. From the very beginning, recognise, please, the political tension between the protagonists and the games being played out in front of us. The Jewish leaders and Pilate are not on the same side. Straight away, Pilate frames the discussion in Roman law using technical legal language. What is the charge? Verse 29, he asks. Their response is legally evasive. Literally, would we be bringing him to you if he wasn't an evildoer? That's not the question. Pilate wants to avoid getting involved dismissively. He tells them to try it under Jewish law. Not only is he trying to avoid responsibility for dealing with the case at all, because it just smells wrong to him, I think. He's also unsubtly reminding them as to who holds power and authority here. Thing is, the religious leaders don't want a trial. They don't have time for one. They want an execution. So they state that Jesus has claimed to be a king. Now, as such a clear act of sedition against Rome would justify execution, Pilate has to hear them. He's forced to go in to question Jesus about their claims. When challenged, Jesus stresses that his kingdom will not come through human fighting, that it isn't in any sense geographic or political at all. Verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. But now my kingdom is from another place. Pilate has little time for that. Rubbishing Jesus' claim to be a king at all on this basis could translate verse 37, not really a king, are you? But Jesus insists that he came to establish his kingdom on truth and that everybody being of the truth hears my voice literally. And there's a conscious echo there of Jesus as the good shepherd whose sheep know his voice. Again, Pilate has not the slightest interest in this. This is all about a power struggle with the leaders of those he has to rule. But he does convince them that there's no substance at all to the charge brought against Jesus, verse 38. Then Pilate miscalculates. Trying to appeal over the heads of their leaders to the crowd, trying to humiliate their leaders still further, Pilate proposes to release their king to them. But he's misjudged the moment. Barabbas' relatives here to claim the tradition of the feast, allowing a prisoner to be released. Barabbas' relatives, the religious leaders and their attendants all shout for him instead. While they would not step into a Gentile home for fear of becoming unable to eat the Passover, according to verse 28. Nevertheless, the religious leaders will engineer the killing of an innocent man on a trumped-up charge and then shout for a man of proven violence, a terrorist, to be released in his place. Pilate still wishes to avoid an injustice, still wishes to avoid losing face before those he has to rule, still wishes, honestly, to avoid responsibility. He has Jesus flogged. Aside from allowing his soldiers some fun by humiliating Jesus, I wonder if he hoped that presenting an utterly humiliated Jesus before them would prove the charge so ridiculous that it would allow him to drop the matter. But even a wounded Jesus, humiliated and arrayed as the king before them, is not enough to persuade them to back down. 
Truthfully, the religious leaders discern Jesus' threat to them much more clearly than does Pilate. Mob-handed, again they are ready. They shout for crucifixion as soon as they see Jesus. And because Pilate is still wriggling, still seeking to get out of the binds they've put him in, still honestly thinking that probably an injustice is being done, they add the killer detail in verse 7, that Jesus had claimed to be divine. That's a difficult claim to hear when you're working for an imperial family also claiming divinity for itself, particularly when you owed your own advancement to someone who'd then fallen out of favour spectacularly. Pilate is by now thoroughly unnerved. Where do you come from? Is Pilate's anxious question in verse 9, a question Jesus simply refuses to answer. So Pilate has a choice to make and, and he appeals to Jesus to help him out. Do you refuse to speak to me? He says, don't you realise I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Verse 10, we can hear his anxiety there. For whatever the Jewish law dictated was irrelevant. Roman law alone was sovereign. Pilate alone had the right to authorise an execution. He wants to avoid giving the religious leaders what they want. Once again, we see the sovereignty of God. Once again, we see Jesus as the still centre around which everything else turns. For Jesus will neither plead for mercy nor offer false witness that will justify his release. Jesus respects the power given to Pilate, verse 11, only because it has been given him from above. Now Pilate has become determined to set Jesus free. Determined to avoid responsibility, certainly determined not to lose face, surely. Determined also because he wonders now, really wonders, just who Jesus really is. But as his determination to release Jesus grows, the clamour outside only grows as well. So Pilate cannot choose to do nothing. With the religious elite demanding execution, the crowd outside demanding the release of Barabbas, Pilate comes down to the public seat of justice in verse 13 to give his ruling. He is desperate to release Jesus, desperate to deny the religious elite a victory over him and desperate to avoid responsibility for this mess. Stunningly, in seeking to ensure Jesus' execution, in seeking to defend their place as a temple and their nation, the religious leaders now perversely commit themselves utterly to Rome. Jesus' Jesus's claimed kingship puts him at odds with Caesar, but now they say they recognise no king at all other than the emperor, verse 12 and verse 15. That applies the final, ultimate pressure to Pilate. His patron had spectacularly fallen out of favour in Rome. Being Caesar's friend, verse 12, was a badge of honour in Rome. It was a title with status and prestige attacked. Will Pilate, they say, like them, choose to be Caesar's friend? The threat's clear. If he chooses not to be Caesar's friend, they have the power to make sure that Caesar hears about it. Outmanoeuvred, vulnerable and friendless because his mentor had fallen in Rome, Pilate reluctantly condemns Jesus to death and hands him over to be crucified. We all like sheep have gone astray. 
each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. reading is from John 19, 16b to the end of 24. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. 
Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had the notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claims to be the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled which said, They divided my garments among them, and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. To the four soldiers, this is just routine. An unpleasant job, certainly, but one to which they've had to become hardened. Jesus is one of three condemned prisoners, all led together to their deaths, each carrying on their shoulders their crossbars, the means of their execution. Crucified in a row with Jesus in the middle, they're crucified by a roadway just outside the city so that the interested can come and stare, either to look on with horrified grief or gloatingly to relish their victory. It may be just a job, but at least it had perks. What better way to while away the hours than to gamble over their few meagre possessions? Divided into shares, they gamble for the most valuable item, a seamless garment, woven in a single piece. And even in such small details, John sees an echo, a fulfilment of scripture, here of Psalm 22:18, and sees in the fulfilment of scripture an assurance that God's mysterious purpose is somehow still at work. Fixed above Jesus's head is the board detailing the charge for which Jesus was being crucified. It states that Jesus is the King of the Jews. It's written in three languages so that anyone who is literate is not in any doubt. Both the charge and the punishment are meant to crush any thoughts of an uprising. Yet the religious leaders furiously demand that Pilate take the sign down. Partly, I think, because they want to ensure Jesus' complete humiliation and partly because they don't want to antagonise the crowd. They know just how popular Jesus has been. It reached its height, his popularity, after the raising of Lazarus. They're rushing this through in the frantic preparations before a major Sabbath to ensure that the backlash is minimal. But Pilate obviously resented being outmanoeuvred and having to order Jesus' death. He's never really bought that Jesus is guilty. He's always mistrusted the motives of the religious leaders. Iron has now entered his soul and disappointed, I guess, with having been so weak as to allow this, disappointed at losing face to them, he will not be manipulated again. What I have written, I have written, is his barbed and dismissive answer in verse 22. They got what they wanted and he'll be damned if he gives them anything more. In this section of the Passion, 
Essentially, Jesus does nothing other than suffer. A crown of thorns an inch long has been pressed into his head. He's been scourged with a whip with several leather cords ending with jagged bone, designed not just to inflict pain, but to rip skin and sinew from bone. Nailed to the crossbeam just above both wrists, he'd been suspended from those nails while the crossbeam was fixed in place before another nail was hammered through both his legs just above the ankle, both legs twisted to the same side to make this possible. We remember, we remember that Jesus does nothing other than suffer here, but we remember that this is a choice that he makes on our behalf. We remember that Jesus said in Gethsemane, I am he, and all the soldiers and attendants fell back before him. He consented then to his arrest, and now he continues to consent, moment by moment, breath by breath, gasp by gasp, to this punishment that brings us peace, in the words of Isaiah 53.5. If all Jesus can do in that moment is hang there and suffer, we have to reckon with the reality that this was his choice not to be rescued himself, but to seek to rescue us all. Not to escape judgment, but to embrace it for all and preserve us from it. The price is being paid, moment by moment, breath by breath, gasp by gasp, until it is paid in full. The price is being paid, as he continues to choose this same path, even as he chose it in incarnation, even as he chose it while tempted in the wilderness, even as he chose it when acclaimed by Peter at Caesarea Philippi, even as he chose it when transfigured before the disciples and talking with Moses and Elijah about his departure, even as he chose it while he set his face towards Jerusalem and the cross, even as he chose it while riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, even as he chose it while washing his disciples' feet, even the feet of Judas about to betray him, even as he chose it while wrestling in the garden, he has been choosing this moment for all of his life. Every step, every breath has been towards this moment and still he chooses it remorselessly, moment by moment, breath by breath, gasp by gasp, for this is why he came and he came for us. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. My song is love unknown, my Saviour's love to me, love to the loveless shown Yes.
The reading is taken from John chapter 19, reading from verse 25 to 37. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews didn't want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have their legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified for Jesus and then those of the other but when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, springing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happened so that scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And, as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Nearing the end, Jesus becomes aware that Mary, his mother, John, his closest friend, and several others dear to him, 
are watching and waiting with him to the very end. If it's hard to bear suffering ourselves, watching the impact of our suffering on those we love can make it even harder still to bear, for there is nothing we can do to spare their pain. But what Jesus can do, he does. In the midst of overwhelming agony and brace for all humanity, Jesus still finds room in his heart and mind, in that extreme place, for those closest to him. In an amazingly tender, intimate moment, Jesus gives Mary, his mother, into John's charge and his closest friend into Mary's charge in turn, redefining their relationships in a way that lasts Verse 27, in the midst of overwhelming agony, still Jesus finds time to think of them. But now the end is coming fast. John emphasises in verse 24, verse 28, verse 36 and verse 37 of John 19 that what is happening to Jesus is fulfilling scripture. It was this insight that sustained the early church when they were facing serious persecution themselves. They remembered while praying in Acts 4, 27 and 28, that even when Pilate, Herod and their religious leaders had done their worst, all they had managed to do was somehow to further God's deepest purpose. And therefore they trusted the sovereignty of God. The first reference is to Psalm 22:18 in verse 24, a psalm to which Mark's gospel makes many references in its account of the crucifixion. The second reference in verse 28 may also be to Psalm 22:15, though a reference to Psalm 69:21 may be the clearest one. The third reference to scripture being fulfilled comes in verse 37, where being crucified by a public road near the city with his enemies coming to gloat, captures them looking on the one they had pierced, a reference to Zechariah 12.10. But the most significant and the most central references to scripture being fulfilled are to the story of the Passover itself. The desire of the religious leaders to hasten their demise leads in verse 31 to them asking Pilate to have their legs broken. They don't want the Sabbath polluted. They also don't want to risk public unrest when it becomes apparent what's happened to Jesus. They want the job done. Presumably because Jesus already appears comatose at best and therefore there's no need to hasten his his demise, the soldiers break the legs of those being crucified on either side of him first in verse 33. As the soldiers faced execution themselves, if they let a condemned man escape, they do what we would have done in their place. They checked. With ruthless efficiency, they checked. The spear thrust into Jesus' side is to determine whether he's actually dead. And it brings forth, verse 34, a sudden flow of blood and water. Although some have seen in this a reference to baptism and communion, I don't think that's necessary. Modern medical science has shown that this is the separation of clot and serum into what looks like blood and water, which starts to happen rapidly after death. This is proof positive then that Jesus is dead, and it's amazingly strong testimony 
for this is what was observed. It wasn't what someone was looking for, as its significance wasn't understood. It is simply what was seen. So why does this matter and how does it fulfil scripture? Simply because the fact that Jesus' side was pierced to determine that he was already dead shows from John's perspective that none of his bones needed to be broken, verse 36. The Passover regulations in Exodus 12, 46 and Numbers 9, 12 stipulate that only a lamb with no broken bones can be the Passover lamb. It was to be a perfect offering, not a cast off. Jesus is a Passover lamb. This is somehow the new Exodus, the new mighty act of deliverance through which God's people are forever passed over for judgment because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us, as Paul will later proclaim in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Through the cross of Christ, we are rescued forever to serve and glorify him now and always. It is this which Jesus has courageously embraced and even more courageously endured as the still centre of the narrative. It is this, verse 29, which has been accomplished. The new Exodus, the new Passover, we are passed over for judgment through the cross of Christ now and for always. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Be the same. 
The reading is from John 19, verses 38 to 42. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Joseph of Arimathea is influential. Influential enough to be given an urgent audience with Pilate, even on such a pressured, frantic day as a day of preparation before the Passover. Even more startling is that Pilate trusts Joseph enough to give him charge of Jesus' body. As rebels were normally dumped in a common grave, the fact that Pilate releases the body to Joseph is further evidence he never believed that Jesus was guilty in the first place. Nicodemus is a Pharisee serving on the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, who'd come to see Jesus at night because he knew that Jesus was a teacher sent by God, according to John 3, 1-2. On another occasion, related in John 7, 45-52, when the temple guards were sent to arrest Jesus and come back having refused to do so because they found his teaching so amazing, Nicodemus spoke out against the Sanhedrin condemning Jesus without a hearing. Both Joseph and Nicodemus had previously kept secret their decision to follow Jesus. John's Gospel, as the Gospel from Jerusalem, details the bitter opposition of the religious leadership to Jesus and the fear that it provoked among the people. John 7, 12-13, for example, mentions widespread whispering about Jesus among those attending the Feast of Tabernacles, whispering because no one dared to discuss him publicly. The parents of the man born blind healed in John 9 are so terrified of the authorities in verses 20 to 23 that they refuse to speak up for their healed son. 
John 12, 42 to 43 speaks about other leaders who believe in Jesus, but who are unwilling to confess their faith for they fear being excluded from the worshipping communities of God's people. The bitterness of the opposition makes what Joseph and Nicodemus do here all the more extraordinary. When seemingly Jesus has been utterly defeated, when seemingly there is nothing at all left to be gained and everything to be lost, they risk everything. Everything they had previously feared to lose. Their place in society, their place within the Sanhedrin, even their place within the synagogue. They risk everything they had previously not dared to lose to honour Jesus in this moment when surely there is nothing left to be gained. So revolted are they by what they'd seen that they find the courage to honour Jesus' death in a way they had not dared to do openly in life. They will simply not stand by and allow his death to go unmourned or unmarked. Taking the body down from the cross, they wrapped it, probably with the help of servants, in strips of linen along with a huge amount of spices. As reverently as possible, given the strict Sabbath to come, his body was laid to rest in a new tomb. It is a real death, as the separation of clot and serum that flows from the spear thrust in verses 34 to 35 proves. It is a real death and a real burial. It is a real Passover, a real exodus. But for that to be, we await the dawn. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. his feet.
Thank you for your company as we've journeyed through John chapter 18 and 19 together. A final prayer. Most merciful God, who by the death and resurrection of your Son Jesus Christ delivered and saved the world, grant that by faith in him who suffered on the cross we may triumph in the power of his victory. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen. Amen.